Welcome to episode 105 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This episode is with the newly appointed High Performance Director at Austin FC, Dave Tenney. Dave came on to talk about the first actions he's going to take in his new role, um, the approach that he's going to take at his new club. We spoke about, um, on reflection, the things he thinks that we do well in football S&C or football physical prep. We spoke about things we can improve on, some lessons he's learned from the NBA. Um, and then also we had the, the debate on how strong is strong enough for our players. So big thank you to Dave for coming on. Obviously, a lot of people will know um, or heard of Dave before and sort of followed his journey. So it's great to have another practitioner on with such great experience and someone that's fresh out of another sport as well. So I think it was a great time to catch Dave and get some of his um, thoughts on lessons from what he's learned working in the NBA and in basketball. So big thank you to Dave for coming on. Um, I hope you take plenty from this episode. As always, please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast. So on Spotify, iTunes, and on YouTube as well, just head over and subscribe. And also, please give it a share um, and a comment as well. So anyone that you think will benefit from the podcast, please share the episode with them because we really do appreciate every single person that puts the episodes out and shares the podcast. So big thank you for all your support on that. Here is episode 105 with Dave Tenney. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dave Tenney, the newly appointed High Performance Director at Austin FC. So first of all, Dave, congratulations on the new role. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And um, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to finally speak to you and have you on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. I've been uh, an avid listener now for the last uh, few months, so it's, a, it's an honor to be on. Oh, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. No, thank you very much. Um, it's, like I say, it's great to have you on. So if we dive into, I've just touched on your current title, the new role, and I'm yep. sure people would have followed your journey and, and seen recent roles, but do you want to just take us through your career so far? Um. Sure. I feel like that's a long, a long time. So I'll skip, I'll be very brief. Um, I had a, a, a very average playing career, pro semi-pro, uh, indoors, outdoors, and, you know, us a little bit in lower leagues of Germany. Um, stopped playing around the age of 28, 29, uh, went back to school, finished my degree in coaching science, George Mason university, went into the, Rolled into the master's program there in exercise science, human performance. Uh, some of the the staff that I had worked, that I played under in indoor soccer had taken over the women's pro uh, team in Washington at the time. And so started on the staff with them kind of right out of the gates, luckily. Uh, and then that rolled into being able to do the, the, uh, the A-license course through the Czech FA, which was kind of the game changer for me kind of switched over into the more kind of the sports science and, uh, and fitness side, uh, specialized in that post, you know, kind of post this course. And that was in 2004 and, uh, was lucky to get a chance to go to Kansas city. It was Kansas city wizards then sporting KC now in 2007 and then joined the uh, Seattle Sounders in 2009 and kind of evolve the role like many of us kind of do we're in one place and you know what was going on over a decade ago versus now and started as head fitness coach and ended as high performance director after nine years in seattle and then uh, went to delando magic uh we just finished three years there just was interested to you know have a different experience um challenge you know, myself uh and it was a great experience and then um you know, just recently in the last month, I've joined Austin FC to be the new high performance director for Austin FC, who'll start MLS in 2021. So, awesome. And what what led to the decision? I'll start again. What led to the the decision? Easy for me to say to come back to football or soccer day from the NBA. A couple of things. I mean, I mean, quite honestly, I just missed the sport. I mean, it was obviously the sport that I loved. Um, 
and played growing up and had worked in for my entire life. My entire working life was in, you know, the sport of soccer, football. Um, having been with the Sounders for nine years, I just had this urge to try something different, to challenge yourself, to kind of reinvent yourself in some ways. And, uh, and I had this opportunity to go to Orlando. And, you know, and I think I, I would almost challenge it. It's not possible for everyone here to go work in a different sport or a different country, a different environment, but to be able to go work in a different sport, you know, like, like the NBA, uh, really just helps you see things totally differently. It gives you a different perspective. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I really embraced that and wanted something totally different thinking that, you know, I, I will get to know the sport like I did soccer. Mm-hmm. Once you're in there, I think I realized there's, there's two things. One was, I'll probably, I will never know the sport of basketball as well as the sport of football. And, and the, the learning curve was far steeper than I would have thought going in, you know, cause I'd been around basketball my whole life, but the, the NBA, the intricacies of the play calling, the offensive schemes, the defensive schemes, the kind of the different positional roles were so, you know, obviously very advanced, very complex. I thought I would, I would understand it, but, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be like someone walking into a Premier League club out of a totally different sport and trying to understand exactly what the coach wants in every different position, which I feel is important still for my job. Um, so, so I think there was that recognition that I that okay, football is my sport. I'm not going to know basketball ever as well as you know soccer, football, and then two, the you know the nature of the role of the high performance director within the NBA is a very different role. It is. It's very managerial. It's a staff of about 11, 12 people. Um, it is talking to a lot of agents and doctors and management. There's very little practice or training once you get into the season. So it's not as much of a interaction with the head coach as, let's say, you know, in, in our sport. Um, and so I didn't feel at times where it was kind of like, it's, it, it didn't stimulate me in the way that I've really enjoyed what I got out of being a you know, performance director in football, where you're kind of sitting down with a coach, um, trying to tick the boxes over the course of the week of what you want to hit te- technically, tactically, physically to get the team prepared for the next game. Like you don't, you don't really have that in the NBA because it's always the next game and the next game and the next game. Then there's an injury. And then you're talking to a doctor, you're talking to an agent and you're giving weekly updates to agents on the status of their players. It was a, it was a really different type of role that, uh, you know, you didn't really anticipate until, until you're in it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to delve into some of the sort of lessons or takeaways uh, on that yeah. shortly. Um, one thing I was going to ask, Dave, is because a lot of people go, will go into a new role and probably be quite unsure on where to start. We've spoke a lot about it on the podcast that some people will go in and they'll go in like gung-ho and everything will be changing from day one and others will take that sort of step back and look at things and then gradually yeah. make some changes. So what's, what's your <laughs> approach going into the, the new role with Austin? Well, I mean, I guess I would think globally for anyone going into a new role, what I would say is one of the most important things is to really to, to feel your, almost lean into that role, feel your way into that role. And too many times people kind of have a very strict conceptualization of what that role is going to be before they go in. Mm. And that may not actually be exactly what the person that hires them thinks it's going to be. Yeah. Right. And, and, and a new practitioner could come in and kind of, you know, create conflict or kind of run headfirst in the walls right away because they think their job is X and they're going to walk in doing X, but they haven't really asked the questions of like, okay, what, what are your expectations of me? What, what are, what's my actual role? What are my responsibilities? What, what do you expect from me on a daily basis? What do you expect? Uh, what time should I be in in the morning and what should I wear? And who do you want me to talk to? And who do you not want me to talk to? And, you know, it's kind of a lot, there's lots of little things like that. And, um, I would often remind you kind of young staff members that will come in. One of my, my, my advice to them was always like, try not to step on landmines because it's really easy to step on a landmine and have no clue you're doing it. Um, and if you look at, let's say some of the U S military, when they're you know, onboarding staff members, they have what they call like, a, uh, they, they've termed it a three month, no fly zone, right? Where listen for three months, just sit, just absorb. Don't, talk too much. Don't 
go into places you might not be welcome and kind of feel your way in. And, and, and then, and then the right doors will open up. You'll be accepted. You will, um, you know, you'll be given the responsibility that you want, but don't create resistance by, you know, coming in, like, I'm going to make my mark right away. I'm going to show them my talents when, until you really know what the, the people that have hired you expect out of your role. Right. So that, so that's more global. Um, I would say with me and, and, and my role, and I think it's a lot here, it's, it's going to be a job, you know, built around, you know, the needs of, of the head coach, you know, Josh Wolf, and then, you know, and then the, the general manager, Claudia Reyna, um, or president, uh, I forgot what the exact titles are, the, the, the chief soccer officer, I think they're called in MLS, but essentially the, the club presidents. Uh, and, and now it's here, it's, it's about what's exciting about this role is it's coming into an expansion team and you're building a staff and you're building infrastructure and you're building technology and you're building a, a data structure with a new you know, director of sports science analytics we've hired. Um, you're trying to create a culture coming in and so that this particular job it's a lot more building infrastructure process and systems as you come in which i think is what's really exciting about this role with a with a head coach that highly values high performance that wants to play a certain way and you know where we will have environmental challenges here in texas and um uh the ability for, for athletes to do things at a certain physical level are really, really important you know, to this coach. And so how we, how we build the right structure around the players is going to be really critical. And I think that's what's exciting for this particular role. Yeah, because it's, it's going to be very different, isn't it? Because if practitioners are moving in Europe or the UK, generally they're going into a club that has that yeah. something there already, isn't it? There? There's already a culture, there's already... Um, somewhat of a staff in, in place so it is very different isn't it but it's just interesting to hear your your way of thinking going into that role and I think people can learn a lot from um, listening to you talk about it yeah, yeah I think people people feel like they have to put their stamp on things as soon as they get in and maybe sometimes they have to maybe that's that's a reality for some people but again I think sometimes practitioners can step on landmines trying to make their mark too quickly and too early um, until it's until it's been made clear to them what their role is, um, and, and sometimes that's up to that's up to management. I think it's I think practitioners can do well by trying to ask their superiors as they get in, like, okay, what do you expect of me? What do you want? What you know? How should I do things? How should I not do things? And um, and, and you know, that's that's some of the things I think I've especially learned in the last three, four years of going from Seattle to Orlando now to Austin, that those are really important questions that we have to ask as we go into new organizations. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And then I was going to ask as well, for, so from going from soccer to the NBA and then back to soccer, on reflection uh, of working in the NBA, um, what do we do well as, a, as an industry in terms of physical preparation for soccer or football? I think there's a there within soccer football there's a naturally integrated model that has developed over time like we just talked about you know like that and maybe it's part of my frustration having been in, in the NBA is like it's not a let's get together with the coach and let's tick a technical tactical physical box over this week and you know what exercises hit the physical as well as the technical tactical um, that's that's not so NBA like but it is very, you know, within football, it is very natural. And you have your tactical periodization and your structured training from Barcelona and you, um, <clears throat> you know, the football conditioning, Verhein model. It's like the football culture breeds very well, kind of this integrated model where I think there's been more of a movement in the last 10 years away from, you know, let's go running in the woods and then let's go do technical, isolated technical work. And then let's go uh, do a, a, a very what isolated tactical exercise and then let's go, let's go lift weights. There's, there's less of that right in this, in, in, in the football environment. And I think that's, that shows the evolution of the sport, which is a positive. Um, if you want to flip it, you know, what do I think that football doesn't do as well? Um, and maybe that's relative to the NBA. I mean, I think what, what was interesting to me about the NBA was how, highly individualized the environment was 
uh, that was fascinating to see. And, you know, and again, part of, again, part of my role um, was having a series of physical therapists and strength, strength coaches and sports scientists. And then every, you know, within, within an NBA staff for 15 or 16 players, you, you have five assistant coaches, right? So, so every player has an assistant coach that's assigned to them over the course of the year. And I've assigned a, a therapist to them. And then there's one or two, you know, between your strength coaches or sports scientists, you know, the right person with, with each athlete and, essentially on a daily basis, each athlete had a assistant coach, a strength coach or sports scientist and a therapist assigned to that guy to check in to work. And that those three people kind of worked as a team around each athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, what I thought the NBA does really, really well is, you know, if you have a 1030 practice, the first athletes come out about 850 for 1030 practice. And so your young players come out and, you know, uh, three or four young guys would start doing 20 minute technical session, video session activation for 20 minutes, eight fifty to nine ten. go and eat breakfast and then come out for the main session at 10 30 um, every day, mm. every day. Um, so, so every athlete got exactly what they need um, on a daily basis. And that's again, from a, from a, physical physical maybe a movement a therapy standpoint it's from a, a technical standpoint it's from a um physical strength training standpoint um now you had the resources within the nba you have the resources to be able to provide you know teams will have four to five therapists and um again five strength coaches and sorry five assistant coaches two or three strength coaches where each guy can come in and get a 20-minute session which each one of those parties before the main session at 1030. Um, and so that kind of like opened my eyes of like, okay, sometimes I think at football, we can think of so much that everything is a team level. And yes, the team is really important, but um, you know, within the NBA, we'd have discussions with the head coach of, you know, the, the 13th guy on the roster of 15, who is only shooting 29% from three point range, but by year three, he has to be shooting 37% and how do we get him from 29 to 37% and the right 20 minute, 30 minute dose every single day helps get him from 29% to 37% because he's a far more valuable player. If he can shoot 37% by the time he's in his third year, mm -hmm. that was that those thoughts are always there with, with you know, with the young players in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And as you kind of get in the, you know, the, the mad rush of a, of a, of a soccer football season, it's easy to worry less about the guys, you know, 20 through 24 in your roster and what their needs are and how are they keeping up and, you know, they'll do, you know, top ups at the end of sessions and they'll do four on fours or five on fives, the game after sessions. But like, what do they really need in terms of a player development standpoint um, to be where they need to be by year three? Um, I'm not sure we do a good of a job within our sport as they do in the NBA. That's a great point. It's something, again, we've, we've talked about a lot in terms of players' utilisation of like um, external practitioners or private private coaches because, like you said, the, the need for that individualization, but there's also the want from the player as well, isn't there? That they, yeah. they want that individualised approach. So do you, do you think that's the way that, that football soccer will, will go eventually? Obviously, it comes down to resources like you mentioned yeah, before, doesn't yeah. it? And one of the reasons why the NBA staffs have grown in, in size so much within the last five five years or so is because you can, you, rather than having that athlete who might make $10 million, rather than have that athlete go off and hire external people to work with them, you are better off keeping that in-house and hiring an extra therapist or an extra strength coach or an extra um, assistant coach to give that player what they need. Right. And so maybe that's within, within, you know, football, soccer, that's not, that's not actually possible, you know, with the resources, a lot of coach, a lot of clubs have, but within basketball, um, you've seen now, you know, clubs that have five, six therapists and, you know, you have clubs that have 10, um, player what they call player development coaches, which coaches that really specialize in technical development and, um, um, shooting and, you know, some of those very refined skills that NBA guys need. Um, 
there's a bigger investment on the staffing, which again comes back to like my role going in, like my role, rather than focusing on relationship with the coach, it was, you know, making sure each one of these guys has the right therapist around them, has the right strength coach and triangulating with the assistant coach, what they're getting on a daily basis. Um, and it's a lot more um, coordinating, I guess, of, of a role. Uh, and, and then, and then, and then making the agents and any external you know, practitioners feel like, you know, kind of fostering those relationships as well. And, you know, our, our head strength coach um, with Orlando would know most of, uh, you know, the external practitioners. If, if, if a player has his own person, then, you know, maybe the guy doesn't want to be in the facility more than four hours a day. So he's going to get a strength session at home with, you know, his practitioner. Well, we are in contact with that you know, the person's external practitioner. So we've got a good relationship and, you know, and so you always have a little bit of say or control in what each athlete's getting. Cause we don't want to get in that mode where every athlete has his own group of people at home. And, you know, he comes in for team practice then goes home and has his own therapist and his own strength coach and has his own, you don't really want that. So you know, we haven't even talked about the nutrition side, you know, but a lot of these, uh, top level athletes have their own chef nutritionists, especially chefs. And so from, you know, a chef and therapist and, and strength coach side, being able to foster relationships. If, if an athlete chooses to have their own people, that at least you are, you're trying to work as a team and get on the same page rather than resist and tell them they don't need that. Um, yeah, because that's that's definitely something that's accelerated in in football over the last few years, isn't it? That the the external practitioners, I think, are definitely the numbers have increased, um, yeah. but also the the reception of clubs. Like I've spoke to a lot of people on the podcast that are at clubs that say, "Yeah, we work with external coaches. We we um, engage with them, like you're mentioning. We find out what they're doing. We we take control of it somewhat." But then there's I suppose a few years back and when it first started, there was a lot of, um, like it wasn't as well received, was it? It just seemed yeah. like players were going out of their way to do extra stuff. So it's it's how we integrate it, isn't it? You talked about integration within the coaching staff, but now it's, I suppose, it's within the coaching staff and then yeah. a little bit wider yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're saying. Like as, as much as if you're within the club, you see it as a threat. And if it, and if it's done wrong, it can be a threat. You can lose control of an athlete and what they're getting um, when they leave. But the flip side, you can flip it and say, whether it's, you know, let's say premier league or NBA, like these guys are, you know, the athletes are traveling so much. Like they are literally, if you're in the NBA, the guys are tired. Like you, you, you can't face the fact that you're going to get home at 3am so many times where like our athletes are tired. Mm-hmm. And so, um, being able to work with you want a certain amount of work done, but if a guy says, listen, I'm just tired. Can I go home and I can do a strength session with my guy back at home at four o'clock today? Um, if you can develop the right relationship and work with them, then you do allow that athlete to kind of get out of the facility because you know, they are mentally and physically tired, get home rest and then get the work that they, they need later on. Like that's, that's an okay solution. Mm. And then, and then I suppose tying in with that as well, like where you were talking about the numbers available in the NBA, can I, can I sort of hear all the coaches at the lower league clubs in, in England or even Premier League clubs going, I wish I, I wish we had all these yeah. people available to us. Um, so, and, the, and clubs don't have that right now. So utilizing yeah. these external people in the right way. Yeah. But also I think it's, it's interesting because I think within the NBA, it, it, it just has, has had to develop in that way. And, and, you know, again, if to me, you know, what, what's happened is you have these NBA superstars that, you know, they, they want to get their own therapist, their own strength coach. Right. And so, um, the club might go to this athlete and say, listen, rather than you go get your own person, then we will go and get a, a therapist just for you. Mm-hmm. Then we know your status and, and then you don't have to pay for it. Right. Because again, if a guy is making 10, $12 million a year, um, you can get someone of good quality at a fraction of that cost that has a good investment in that athlete and helps keep that athlete tied to the organization. The problem is it's still not cultural where, um, that's, that's 
I think, accepted at times. Because you know, again, the, 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 the salaries in the Premier League continue to escalate. Um, and you do see, you know, like we were talking before the, the show about the um, all or nothing with, you know, with, with Tottenham. And, you know, you, and you do, you see the, you know, the locker rooms at Tottenham and, you know, just the number of therapists there. And there's five guys lying across the table, you know, and, and you know, five therapists working at the same time. And like, that's, you know, so Premier League clubs are doing the same thing. Like it's, it's there too. Um, but uh, it's, that, that is, that's going to be more the norm you know, for, for with this trickle down, I mean, okay, your top five to six can financially afford that, but mm. it has to be, does the bottom half of the, of the Premier League, do they see that as a good investment, you know, to continue to add more, you know, more people? And then does that trickle down in the championship? Like these are all investments in your athletes, which helps hopefully keep them on the field, which is they're good investments. And there's still, I think, staffs that are operating, you know, far that should have the resources, but they have far less um, support from the clubs, I guess, and they probably should, you know, and, and I definitely respect that. I just wanted to give a couple of updates on our online community. So we have some upcoming webinars, some brand new upcoming webinars soon to be uploaded onto the community to join all the webinars that are already available on there. Um, there's, if you haven't seen or heard of our community, we've got an online platform available for practitioners, and on the platform, we have a number of different webinars and presentations covering numerous topics and absolutely loads of information on there now. You can access the community by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab at the top. And if you sign up and register there, that will give you one month free on the community so you can see what it's all about. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month and you will get access to all the webinars that are, are available as well as all of our network meeting presentations. There's 10 of those presentations currently available and when we do finally get our network meetings back up and running, um, the, the presentations from those events will also be going on to the community. So go and check it out. If you're a member, make sure to log in and check out the most recent um, webinars. But if you're not a member, head over to footballfitfed.com, get yourself signed up so you can check out all the content that's on there. Here's part two of the episode with Dave. Yeah, when you're talking about investment as well, it's obviously important for the club because if they can, if they can um, progress a player within the club without going yeah. out to spend millions on an external player, then obviously that's that saves the club money in the long run, doesn't it? By a short-term investment in, like you say, whether it's therapists, S and C coaches, whatever it is that the player needs and wants to to develop. Yeah, exactly. And then, Dave, so just to move it on, so um, more lessons from the NBA. We're going to delve into this in, in more detail, and but looking more at the strength program. So I think it's quite fascinating to look at the two sports. There's, there's crossovers between the two sports, isn't there, in terms of the, the demands. Um, so what are some lessons that, that sort of jump out to you on the way that NBA players physically prepare in the gym um, and how we, prefer, we, we prepare in the gym for football or soccer? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a general embracing of strength training in the NBA that we just don't have in our sport, you know, and, and <clears throat> after, you know, kind of the first year I would, I would just kind of, or, you know, or, or let's say on a daily basis, I open up Twitter and I, and I see the kind of the, the banter back and forth of me you know, regarding strength training. Um, I, I, I almost wish that, you know, every person working, you know, in our, in our space could come live in the NBA for two years and see how the athletes actually embrace it um because i think it's um they they almost intuitively feel they can that that it, that it helps them far more than i think that uh you know within within football that, that the athletes connect the dots with that and, um but that's that's what i've learned i think that they it's funny because basketball is clearly a, a highly technical sport right and and they're all great athletes but you know there's sometimes this this kind of I don't know, this thought process that, you know, well, our sport's technical and it's about keeping the ball and the technique's so important, you know, and like, just if you focus on strength training that, you know, you're, you're missing the point. It's a technical sport, you know, and I would say, well, basketball is equally as technical of a sport. Like if, if you can't shoot, you can't 
you, 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 you're never going to get the big contract in the NBA, right? So these guys spend hours and hours and hours refining their skills, refining their technical ability on a daily basis, you know, on a daily basis, they're working. Um, and yet they all intuitively know that the strength training is also important that if I don't feel as powerful going up, you know, for a rebound in the second game and a back-to-back that I'm not as effective of a player, um, that I do have to maintain my power, that I, that I do have to maintain my weight because if, as these guys get through two, three months of the season, they're losing three, four kilo because they're not lifting weights as much. They're not strength training, you know, the actual getting the number of calories in and the you know, carbohydrates and proteins is a struggle. Um, so I've got to strength train. I've got the right nutrients. Nutrition, so I'm not eight kilos lighter at the end of a season. Um, you know that's that's a real thing. So there's just kind of this this acknowledgement of the importance of strength training, and then along with like we we've not discussed this, but again, um, tendon health is hugely important in basketball. Whether you know Achilles patella, and if you're not actively going in and loading Achilles patella on a daily basis in the weight room, then you will have patella pain, mm-hmm. patella tendon pain, right? Like just the patella tendon pain is, um, patella tendinopathy is such a huge issue in the NBA, you know, and we all know just kind of these strategies around um, mitigating patella tendinopathy symptoms, it's load, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's, whether it's uh, eccentric loading, whether it's isometric, but this, you know, the tendon programs and, and actually loading your tendons is extremely important in the weight room on a daily basis. Um, so I almost think there's a natural acknowledgement to that and understanding of that in basketball that we just don't have, you know, and, um, and I think, you know, me and you were talking before the, the, the show about perceptions, right? We, sometimes a guy will say, well, I don't strength train, but he'll go in and he'll use the K box and he'll do, you know, kind of isometric tendon work. And uh, no, he's, he's, he's strength training. He just isn't seeing it as strength training. Like strength training doesn't have to be, you know, putting hundred kilo on a bar and putting on someone's back and doing, you know, squats or deadlifts or whatever. It doesn't have to be that. Um, you can do eccentric work in a K box and you can do a tendon loading program and, and, and that's very effective. Um, so, um, I just think there's a general, like, you know, acceptance of that. I mean, we have guys that will, you know, lift, the morning of game days, or it's very common to have post-game strength sessions in the NBA guys that play lower minutes or guys that feel like if you have a back-to-back and the next day's off and then two days after you play, they'll come in the gym and do a light lift after, you know, after a game because um, they know their body needs it. And it just, um, you just don't see that as much in our sport. What do you think is the important factor for um, changing that culture and that understanding then, Dave? Uh, I think it's got to, I mean, well, changing, I think the head coach or manager derives the culture so much within these sports that you have to have a head coach or manager that knows the importance, right? Like as you as a practitioner can jump up and down and say, this is really important. we got to get in the weight room. we got to do this. But if it, things don't happen from the top down in, in organizations and you, it's really hard to make change, you, you can maybe, but you know, you're always fighting an uphill battle where if the head coach or manager comes in and says, this is how we do things. This is our standard. When the players know what their expectations are. Um, so I think it's about coach education um, or at least you know, head coaches being open to allowing staff to fully do their role without, you know, without kind of, micromanaging um you know, we we brought up the the thing with Bayern right the the Bayern pre and post you know kind of covid shutdown and what the players look like and clearly the players embrace strength training and you know and, and um again they did not necessarily win because of their strength training but you know again the, the pre post pictures and it, it you you can't look at Bayern and say that the uh, Lewandowski's and, you know, the, those guys that got, you know, Muller and those guys that got so much bigger, it certainly didn't hurt them the way they played at all. And, you know, if you ask the teams that they played against, you know, physically how impressive they were, um, that, and, and that is more, I think, the, the, the openness to the head coach and allowing 
staffs to fully do their jobs rather than putting the handbrake on, you know, at all times and being afraid that they're going to be there. They're going to uh, have to do less on the field. They're not going to be able to do the tactical work on the field. You know, we, we don't prioritize strength training. And that's what you, I think that's what you hear at times from different organizations. Yeah. There's, there's many different confusing statements made out there about strength training, isn't there? That's constantly, we were talking about it just before, like it's, it's constantly leaning one way, leaning the other way, and people get very confused about it. But it does come down to fundamentals, doesn't it? And yeah. understanding those fundamentals. And I was going to ask you as well, on reflection of going from, from soccer to the NBA, back to soccer, are there any sort of key things that you've pointed out that you'd um, amend or, or change in terms of the gym work that the players are doing or anything that you, you just feel like you, things have progressed over the last few years? Well, I would definitely say like the tendon work again. I think just the, to be in the NBA and, and to, to um, <clears throat> see the amount of time we spend looking at tendon health relative to what we do and, you know, in, uh, um, in football, is, it's night and day. And so I think, again, I, I reflect on some some – uh, different cases that I had in the past of guys that had, you know, patellotendinopathies and, um, and the, you know, kind of the, the complex programs we had in place in the NBA, I think far, you know, kind of outdid what we were doing, you know, kind of whatever a decade ago and with an MLS. So tendon work is super important. You know, I think, again, there's, there's a, there's this acceptance that, certain parts of, of, you know, power training, what true power training really is, you know, within the weight room is important for kind of power maintenance. And again, this is one of those things in, in soccer where we, we want to get that typically on the field, but does it have to, um, be on the field? And, um, I, I don't think so. Um, and, and then, you know, it was interesting being in a sport like basketball because it is such a vertical sport, right? We always kind of think, you know, horizontal force production, you know, lateral force production, but it was interesting, you know, within basketball where um, the focus was, is so important on kind of this um, vertical force production, you know, and using force plate data really effectively. Um, uh, that I think those, those are, those are, you know, resisted jumps and some of the resisted jumping that, that, are, that again, basketball players accept they want to do, they search for that. They're still, you know, soccer players that are, that are concerned about that concerned of doing too much. Um, and again, I think recognizing it's, it's, it's the individualization of the athlete as well, because going back to the, some of the points of, um, learning about each individual guy we've had a, you know a couple guys in orlando that are you know, these these super elastic athletes right like it's well, you know you might want to jump into down the road and talk about you know how strong is strong enough and like this whole talk but then what type of athlete are they you know are they more kind of strength power type guys are they super elastic we had a couple just super elastic jumpers like kind of like hyper mobile super elastic you know jumping type guys that could just you know could um you know, get the ball, elevate, jump over everyone, shoot, just so relaxed. And that guy, if you overload that guy with a ton of super heavy concentric strength exercises, he just doesn't feel good. Right? Like he doesn't, his body doesn't like that, you know? So it's also like acknowledging what certain athletes need and, the, and then the type of athlete, right? And so the, the really the aerobic guy versus the big strong power guy versus the super elastic athletes and the super elastic athlete you have to be really careful how you load that guy because you can almost like blunt his his elasticity by kind of overloading him. Um, and this guy will kind of like naturally, he kind of knew he'd come in, he gets some work done when he wanted to. He didn't necessarily embrace it as much, but part of it was because he was so elastic and he was maybe the best athlete I had ever worked with, you know? So um, being able to understand what each athlete needs based on their, based on their, their physiology. And this was, again, the NBA, a totally different type of athlete in terms of their, just some of the, the elasticity and, and, and vertical force production was, was fascinating. Yeah, no, definitely. And then we, we wanted to just open up. It's not so much a question more, more than a debate. And I know you've touched on it there um, yeah. of how strong is strong enough because 
we'll have players listen to this, we'll have coaches listen to this, and we talk a lot about strength training, but I suppose it's the determining where we're trying to get to. And, and like you say, understanding that individual is so important, isn't it, on, on that scale of things and how we work with everyone. Yeah, and, and why you're strength training too. I think, again, we've had... Um, do you want, do you want athletes to get strong, but do you want them to gain weight? Like we had, you know, within the NBA over a series of years, we had, um, the club drafted kind of young, super long, physically underdeveloped guys that the goal was to gain five kilos of muscle on them per year to get them where they needed to be from 1920 to 23, 24. Um, and so how you strength train is going to be a little bit different, right? Eccentric control and some of the, you know, again, there's, you know, eccentric strength versus concentric strength. And, uh, you know, obviously the hamstrings are a huge issue. It's interesting now with an MLS, um, we're hitting that kind of wall where you're seeing injury rates and MLS start to go up um, with us, you know, that the league trying to get the games and they want so they can start the playoffs in November and you're seeing lots of hamstrings, lots of knees. Um, and so again, there's this kind of eccentric control. Um, so um, we've spent a lot of time. I'm sure you've had a lot of good guests talk about eccentrically how strong is strong enough and an eccentric strength continuing to hammer out eccentric strength is critical. Um, and then, and then knees again with an MLS, I think there's been a, a series of kind of ACLs and MCLs. And, and again, this, the lack of ability to kind of dynamically control while planting landing in a tackle, you've seen a whole slew of knee injuries just in the past month in MLS. And, and I, you know, I think a lot, some more contact, some more non-contact, but also almost across the board, there was a lack of ability to eccentric control, um, as they kind of went into a tackle or as they kind of jumped and landed. Um, so, um, versus your big, strong central defender that just has to feel like he's still big and strong and has to feel like he can still jump and elevate. And what, and, and that guy, I mean, we've, we've had, uh, um, in Seattle, I was lucky to work with a guy, Chad Marshall, who was, I think three time MLS defender of the year. And, you, you might look at him and say that he's lazy, but he wasn't lazy. Like he knew his body and, and he knew what he needed. And, you know, we would play on Saturday and on Sunday he would come in and on Sunday he would do, you know, a very, very small volume of really heavy uh, hex bar deadlifts and like a really small volume of really heavy strength work rather than go on the field and do a run and then take Monday off. And that made him feel great. Right. So again, I think the individualization, the load is, is really, really important. And, uh, and the type of athletes, um, and then, and then looking at, you know, the, the big, strong, heavy guy that made, you know, eccentric contract centric work, the young athlete that might still need hypertrophy, the, the quicker midfielders that do need some just eccentric control. And what that really means by how strong is strong enough. is really what type of strength I think we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. And you, you used the word, quite a few times there in terms of how they feel as well. Yeah. And that's a, a, a really important side of it as well, isn't it? Because if we're delving into the psychological sides of, of strength training, that, that can be huge as well, can't it? And sort of relating to what we were saying about Bayern. Yeah, um, yeah these guys are looking better. <laughs> they're looking a little bit bigger, but they're probably feeling good as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's part of our role to really feel, figure out, how guys are performing, but also their perception of how they're performing and their perception of their physical ability and what makes them perceive that they're physically in a good space. And if, and if that's accurate or not, I mean, typically when a guy comes and he says, you know, his perception is, I, I feel great. Like I just feel so good. I feel like I could run forever. You've kind of somehow stumbled upon what's worked for, for that guy. Um, and and then again, it goes back to, you know, how you're individualizing everything. If you can kind of figure out each different athlete, what makes them feel really good. And hopefully you have data that you're feeding back to them, whether it's running stats, whether it's force play type stuff, whether it's, you know, uh, an HRV type thing that, that you're tying data back into this perception of how they're feeling. Um, you know, so you're trying to, you're trying to give them quantitative data to match their qualitative view of their state, their performance, 
then you're guiding them into being able to create some benchmarks and targets that you'd like for them to hit on the field or in the weight room or, you know, or whatever that might be, or, or as part of their recovery. Um, so, so to me, the, the feeling part really means that's a, that's a, a qualitative data point that now you're trying to match, let's say quantitative information to. Brilliant. I think that's great advice for, for any coaches. Um, Dave, I think we'll move it on to, to the okay. quick fire. Okay. Um, so we've got some quick fire questions for you. Um, the ones we've done for the last few episodes. So um, first of all, what's that? Sorry. They're tough ones. They're tough ones. <laughs> you know what's coming. Um, first of all, your biggest career influence or influences. Um, I mean, I would say, again, as I stopped playing the staff, you know, with the Washington Freedom, I had two coaches there um, that really kind of empowered me. Um, I think there was a couple, you know, a couple coaches that empowered me. And, you know, I was very lucky. I was coaching at George Mason University, um, 2005, 2006. And it just so happened that um, in 2005, <clears throat> Greg Andrulis, who was with the Columbus crew, he ended up getting uh, let go from the Columbus crew and came to George Mason straight from MLS um, and kind of empowered me at that time. And, you know, the, he brought an assistant coach that the two of us went to, to Kansas City. And so for kind of two years, we had a full MLS coaching staff that worked within a college team, you know, within the US that helped kind of give me the confidence to um, uh, know that the methods that we're using actually work, you know, and would work with, with professional athletes. And so I was still doing stuff with Washington Freedom as well. And so there's kind of this window of 2004 to 2006 where you know, I'd taken that check A license course. I was with Greg Andrulis, you know, and George Mason working like an MLS staff. I was working with the women's pro team with the Washington Freedom and designing sessions there and to be able to be, you know, have two coaching staffs there that were just so open. Let me, you know, almost try whatever I wanted to do. Um, and you know what works and what doesn't work. And it goes back to like with the the phrase I was using before, like not stepping on a landmine, right? You, you will eventually step on a landmine, but you hope when you step on a landmine, no one's, no one's watching, right? And those two coaching staffs allowed me to kind of step on some landmines without, you know, without anyone watching, which, you know, I think, I think every, every young practitioner needs, right? Cause you are going to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes, but you have to be in an environment where uh, no one makes a big deal out of your mistakes after you make them. And, you know, those are two staffs that definitely allowed me to do that. So basically we've got to find these landmines in the right locations. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great point. And then the next one, Dave, your, your biggest strength as a coach, what would you say your biggest strength is as a coach? Um, I hope, I think it's funny. You always ask this question and, 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 and I always wonder like to the people that answer, do we, it's what we hope they are, but we don't, we don't always know that they are. Um, I would hope that my strength is, is again, I think the, 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 the relationship with the head coach or manager and being able to, to find the right solutions on the field in the weight room, pair what's in the weight room together, what's, what, what's happening on the field, be able to provide the head coach with solutions. Um, you know, again, the, the tick our physical boxes together with, what he's trying to achieve over the course of the week um, and really work in an integrated way with the coach. Again, that's, that's what I hope that my strength is. Um, but, but again, I think it's, it's really understanding the game and, and how you change different exercises and how you change different exercises impacts the loading and then to work with the coach to really, get all the boxes ticked that, that, that he wants to. Brilliant. And then next one, um, what's the best bit of CPD or webinar that you've seen or, or um, done recently? Um, yeah, again, I think it was interesting talking to Rude Van Ock. You, know, you talked to him last week and he brought up them in the Sounders. I think conferences were, were good. The sports science conference with Seattle. And then they also have the analytics one as well. That was, that was also very, very good. Um, you know, I've, I've really liked like the, uh, the high intensity training um, program with uh, Paul Larson and Martin Bouchette. Um, they're, they're 
course that they do. I think that's, that's a very good one as well for anyone interested in kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the metabolic side and high intensity training. I thought that was a really good, really good course. Um, so probably those two together, um, I'm working on a, uh, on a, on a PhD in organizational leadership and development. So I don't have as much time for outside CPD, but, um, that's understandable. That's yeah. understandable. <laughs> and then final ones, Dave, what would you say, um, the best trait to have is from a coach or most important trait to have from a coach? Well, I would definitely say post my NBA experience. I think the most important quality is like the ability to be transparent to, to athletes and to be able to do it in the right way. Um, and I think that's, it's really underestimated. Like athletes need the truth. Athletes need to hear honest feedback. And that's what's I think so interesting about all these, you know, kind of all or nothing Amazon uh, shows is you, you see the, the, you know, the coach and manager trying to provide feedback to, to coaches. Um, and I've seen, you know, uh, Steve Clifford is the head coach of Orlando magic uh, that I've been able to work with last two years and his ability to provide honest, direct feedback that's taken in by the players is something that I've never, I've never actually seen like at that high quality before, you know, to, cause if, if a guy's not working hard enough, you have to be able to tell a guy he's not working hard enough um, in a way that he accepts as truth. Um, and, and that's really hard. And there's an art to that. There's an art of providing feedback and critiquing someone in a way that's not, um, that's not personal at all, right? Too many times it becomes personal. It's like, you don't do this because I don't like you. you. The athlete thinks that the coach doesn't like them. And then it has to come from a place of, listen, this is how it is. And I wish it wasn't like this, but this is the truth. And, and that's really hard conversation. Like it's, it's coaching is emotion can be emotionally very draining because you are asked to be really honest to athletes to help them get better on a daily, weekly basis. It never stops. Right. And, and, and the human condition is for, 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 for athletes to sometimes take the easy road and, um, or, or, or to relax or to be complacent. Right. And so, Coaching is about making sure people, and it can also be other staff members, staff members and athletes are not complacent. And that's a, that's an emotionally draining place to go, I think all the time. And then to, and then to keep providing that feedback in a way that's never personal, I think is, uh, uh, it's a, it's a skill, you know, I think the really, really good coaches do that really well. And then just to flip on that, what would you say is the, the best trait to have as a player? Yeah, and then I think the, <clears throat> the flip side is to, to be able to accept that, to not take things personally. But I think also just the, the, the best trait is to, to feel like you've never arrived, right? And I think it's, what's interesting about you know, being able to live in the space in the NBA is you're around you know, the number of people um, that around a player like Kobe Bryant, right? Or, um, you know, you know head coach Steve Clifford worked with Kobe Bryant with the Lakers as, as an assistant. And, and if you look at that type player, like if, if you look at the, the top NBA players and our head coach, you know, uh, coach Clifford would say that all the time, like they're crazy. Um, like they're, they're literally crazy how hard they work. Like, yes, it's true. Uh, Kobe Bryant would work out three times a day in the off season because he had certain things he wanted to work on. And there's like an obsessiveness to getting better that I think the very, a lot of the top players in the NBA have. And I feel like sometimes um, we do worry sometimes about overloading and players doing too much and, you know, not, not, not giving them too much work because they need to focus on recovery, but your very top players, athletes, they have to be obsessed with getting better. And I'm not sure if all of them are all the time, you know, but the really special ones do. And you look like a Cristiano Ronaldo, like you get that sense, like he, he wants to be the, he's driven by being the best every single day. And you, everyone can have their own opinion about him. If they like him, they don't like him. He's, you know, he's a nice guy. He's not a nice guy, but you can tell he is driven to be the best every single day. 
Yeah, and it's what Jack Naylor said, actually. I asked him that question because he worked with him at Real Madrid and he said, I think his words were something like he wants to maximise everything he does. Yeah. And that, yeah. that, that's what the top players do, isn't it? That's, that's yeah. the way they work. The NBA is a little bit different environment, but you do have guys and we have to worry about <clears throat> our guys coming in to do extra shooting at 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Like in doing that too often. And what's the nature of that? And um, even we're in the NBA bubble <clears throat> in you know June and July and or July and August. And the NBA sets up where every team has a window from nine to 10 or 10 to 11 every night for guys to do extra work. And that's part of, cause that's part of the, the NBA culture is guys want to go do a little bit of work every single night. And, you know, there was definitely one or two players where we had to hold back. Like as we started games, they still wanted to go every night. And like, you know, now again, there is a financial reward. Yeah. It goes back again, like to the, because basketball is a more easily quantifiable game. If a guy can move from 32% three point shooting to 37% three point shooting, that might mean he makes you know, X million dollars more per year if he can establish he's that much better. Mm-hmm. And so players that are driven by that um, and they work hard, like it's, it's, they become obsessed with that. And, um, and that's was, you know, kind of fascinating to see that from that side. Cause that's, that has not always been our football, football culture. Yeah, definitely. Dave, this has been, this has been great. I think there's loads in this one. Um, so it's great to delve into your experiences. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an uh, honor to be on. Like I said, you've had some great guests, so um, it's a privilege. Brilliant. And just finally, Dave, is there anywhere that you direct people to sort of keep up with what you've got going on? Would it, would it be your Twitter or? Yeah, probably Twitter. I think it's at, at Dave Tunney is the, is the Twitter uh, handle. So um, that's my social media platform of choice i guess real well dave thanks a lot and um all the best at austin thank you thank you i appreciate it we'll stay in touch thanks mate okay good luck cheers bye big thank you to dave for coming on the podcast i really enjoyed this one i could have got on um, for a lot longer than what we did so i really appreciate dave giving up his time uh, in terms of takeaways, again, this was this was one that was absolutely packed full. And I've wrote some down, but I also think I've missed off some as well because um, there was so much information in this one. I wrote down, feel your way in, because that's the way that Dave talked about his approach going into his new role. So I think that's really important. There'll be a lot of people that can relate to that, that going into new ventures and new clubs right now. And he also talked about what are their expectations so finding out the clubs or other practitioners' expectations, that might be the head coach, the manager, um, find out what their expectations are of you. And Dave went into every single detail on that in terms of what you wear, your key roles, absolutely everything. I think that's really important and a great point. He talked about um, stepping on landmines, but they're not stepping on landmines as well. So by that, we were talking about some of the mistakes to be made. So finding the right, when you're early on in your career, finding the right environments to make mistakes and stepping on those landmines so that when you're in roles that are like a role like Dave's, like a a a high performance director or head of performance, you're not going to be making as many of those mistakes or stepping on as many of those landmines. So really good analogy there. Um, He talked about a big positive of football being the integrated model which I thought was interesting in terms of um, other sports not utilising that as well. And then the individualised approach that the NBA take, and we've talked about that a lot in previous episodes, that we feel that players um, want or need this individualization. So it's, a, it's certainly a challenge for a lot of coaches out there because they, they're not going to have the teams or, or the manpower that Dave talked about in terms of what was available in the NBA. But it's certainly... Um, should question or get you thinking about how you can utilize it or or get that individualized approach for your players. Other stuff, obviously there was absolutely loads in this one, but other stuff um, was where he talked about tendon health, so the importance of strength training. And then also the, he said about athletes needing the truth, so players needing the truth. So not beating around the bush with players, giving them the truth and being honest with them is really important. And that was part of the quick fire that we talked that he talked about um, on one of the best traits he sees 
of a coach. So loads in this one. I took loads from it. I hope you did too. Please reach out. Let me know what you thought of the episode. So either drop us a message on Twitter or Instagram uh, at footballfitfed or give us a retweet or a share on Instagram stories, or you can email us if any feedback that you don't want to post on social media, mail at footballfitfed.com. And also go and check out Dave. Dave's um, on Twitter at Dave Tenney, and Tenney is spelled T-E-N-N-E-Y. So big thanks to Dave for coming on. Um, we have got some huge guests coming up in these next few weeks. I'm really excited for the next few episodes, starting with this one with Dave, really good episode with Dave, and then we've got... Um, the next few episode, episodes are going to be absolutely packed full of information, some real quality guests. So I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing those episodes to you. But as always, huge thank you for listening. I will speak to you again next week.